G'day, I'm Adam Spencer and this is City Talks, brought to you by the City of Sydney. City Talks is about starting a conversation, a healthy community discussion about important and innovative global, national and local city issues. In this podcast, we feature some curated highlights from the City Talks public speaker series, recorded live at Sydney Town Hall. Wealth begets power, which begets more wealth, says economist, Nobel laureate and passionate advocate for global economic justice, Professor Joseph Stiglitz. Stiglitz argues that growing inequality brings with it shrinking opportunity. It creates a monoculture which rewards certain sectors while relegating others to second-class status. But when we help others, our community as a whole benefits. Settle in for a fascinating city talk with a great mind, that of Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here tonight. The subject of the talk is, as it says, the price of inequality. It's a subject I've been working on for a a very long time. In fact, my PhD thesis almost 50 years ago was on the subject. And the article uh, that I wrote on the subject called The Equilibrium Distribution of Income and Wealth and was published in Econometrica did not get as much attention as the article I wrote in Vanity Fair Uh, called of the 1%, for the 1%, and by the 1%. And the title of that article really summarizes much of what I'm going to talk about. The basic idea is that inequality has been growing very markedly in most advanced countries around the world, including Australia. And that our societies, our democracies, our economy pays a very high price for this inequality. So what I want to do this evening is first to describe the ways in which inequality has increased. I'll spend a few minutes talking about the causes of the inequality, and then talk about some of the consequences, and finally talk about what we can do about it. So let me begin with a very simple but important important observation. I said while it's been growing within most countries around the world, it's still the case that the level of inequality differs markedly. And there are some countries actually with a decreasing level of inequality. And that tells us a very important message because the economic forces are the same all over the world in countries that are roughly similar. There are, dim, there are not different laws of economics on one side of the Atlantic and on the other, or, or on one side of the Pacific than in the other. So the economic forces are the same, but the outcomes are markedly different. And that raises the question, how do we interpret that? And the answer is pretty clear. The differences in outcomes suggest that the level of inequality is greatly affected by policy and politics. Now, I feel like I I know that there's some question about what is an American talking uh, to Australia about, uh, uh, but I feel like I have some expertise uh, in this area. (laughs) 
I have a particular expertise because the U.S. has the highest level of inequality of any country in the world. The U.S. always does things bigger and better than other countries. And this is an example. Uh, but what worries me is that some people in Australia would like to emulate the American model. And one of the things that we've seen is that the countries that have succeeded most in emulating the American model, particularly in their health and education systems, get results that are very similar to America. So if you work hard at it, you too could come and challenge America as the country with the highest level of inequality, if you want to do that. So to just give you a few numbers that, that describe what's going on, you can look at the level of inequality both in terms of what happens at the top, what happens at the bottom, what happens in the middle. In the case of the United States, there are problems in all three. The share of the top has been going up. There's been an evisceration of those in the middle. And we have more and more people in poverty. So this shows the, the remarkable increase in uh, the share of the income that goes to the top 1% in the United States. It's doubled in the last uh, 30 years since the Reagan-Thatcher kind of reforms on liberalization began. To the point now where the top 1% gets almost a quarter of all the income. Well, if you think that's bad, the top one-tenth of 1%, their share has increased by three to four, fourfold. Now, the interesting thing is that things aren't quite as bad in Australia, but they're not far behind. In terms of the level of the share, uh, the share of the top 1%, the share of the top one-tenth of percent, they're markedly smaller than the United States. But in terms of the increase, it's really comparable. The share of the top 1% has doubled. The share of the top one-tenth of percent uh, has tripled. Now, it wouldn't be so bad if it were the case that uh, there, there's an idea, one of the worst ideas in economics, is called trickle-down economics. Um, there never was a good theory behind this idea. And in some ways, I wish it were true. The idea is very simple. Don't worry about how much money goes to the top because everybody's going to benefit. It will trickle down. If it were true, I said I wish it were true because if it were true, we'd throw so much money at the top that everybody in our society would be well off. But in fact, it's not true. A measure of how well most people in society is doing is called the median income. Half of the people have income above that, half below. It's sort of what's happening right in the middle. Median income in the United States has stagnated for a quarter of a century. Today it's lower than it was a quarter century ago. So again, you know, I find it uh, remarkable that some people talk about following the American model. Median income has been growing about 3.3% in Australia, zero in the United States. The bottom line is the American economic model has not been delivering for most of our citizens. In fact, there are different, what has been happening in our economy to different demographic, social demographic groups differs. One group that I feel some affinity to are males. <laughs> and 
If you look at the median income of a full-time male worker, today it is lower than it was 40 years ago. So there's been really no increases in income for the typical male worker for almost a half century. And if you look at the bottom, things are even worse. Our minimum wage today in the United States is roughly at the level that it was a half century ago. Half of the minimum wage that exists in Australia. And one way of looking at this is a full-time worker, somebody who's working really hard at the bottom, gets an income of $14,000 and does not even have a livable income. He's still in poverty even if he's working uh, full-time. If you want to understand some of the peculiarities of American politics, uh, the Tea Party movement and some of the other strange things that goes on, go on in America, one way of understanding it is that there are a lot of people who are very angry, and they're right, understandably angry, because they were told that every generation was going to be better than the last generation. The reality is they're running hard just to keep up with their fathers and grandfathers. The reason incomes have stagnated is not that productivity has stagnated. Actually, American workers' productivity has been increasing. They become more productive. They become more educated. But what's happened is they haven't shared in that increase in productivity. And this shows this 100% increase in productivity of workers since 1973, more than 40 years ago. But meanwhile, while productivity has increased more than 100%, average wages have actually declined. So the picture that I just described is, is one of an economy that's not been increasing in productivity as fast as some of the best performing economies, but not the worst, but none of the gains have gone to the typical worker. Now, this goes back to the point that I said in the very beginning, that there are very large differences in the degree of inequality. This shows both the uh, standard measure of inequality before, uh, called the Gini coefficient, before tax and transfer and after tax and transfer. And it shows, as I say, very marked differences. What I want to comment on very quickly are where does Australia lie? It's tied for the third worst before tax and transfer degree of inequality among the advanced countries. It does a little better and when we look at after tax and transfer. But its measure of inequality is significantly higher than those that have the lowest degree of inequality. And the level of poverty is actually higher than the average of the advanced countries. Well, while this performance of Australia does not put it anywhere near the top performing economy, the US, in terms of producing inequality, it's far from the bottom, far from the best performing economies in equality. But what is striking about Australia is that it's a natural resource country. And because it's a natural resource country, it should have one of the highest levels of equality after tax and transfer. And the reason I say that is that 
what one should think about the resources that lie underneath the ground, the natural resources, the, the iron ore and the other natural resources, belong to all the people. And the value of those resources are resources that should be used to help the most disadvantaged within the population. Very different. It's a very different principle for taxing savings or work than taxing natural resources. If you tax savings, people might not save as much. If you tax work, people might not work as much, although the economic analysis suggests that elasticities are, are lower than many uh, people think. But if you tax iron ore, it's not going to get mad at you and walk off to another country. <laughs> it's there. It's your resource. It's what we economists would say is inelastically supplied. And therefore, all the value of the resource in excess of the cost of extraction rightly belong to the people of Australia. And if you don't use those resources well, and particularly to help all the citizens of the country, you can wind up with this problem that's been called the natural resource curse. You can wind up as a rich country with poor people. And there are many, many countries that have gone down that route. There are a few countries that have shown that you can, there's another, there's another possibility, there's another world that's possible. Norway is the example of a country with large endowment of natural resources, but they've taken those resources and they've reinvested them in their people. And the result of that is they have the lowest level of inequality of any of the advanced countries. And they've resisted the increase in inequality that has happened in so many other countries around the world. The defining economic event of the recent years has been what is often called here the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis. In my last visit to Australia, I was told, however, that it should really be called the North Atlantic Crisis because uh, it didn't really afflict all the countries. It wasn't global, and in particular, it didn't afflict Australia because your government took strong actions to prevent it, that from happening. But the recession has made things much worse. In the United States, you've seen it particularly significantly, I'll come back to that in a second, but uh, in Europe, uh, it's also been true. Those at the bottom have been hurt by increased unemployment, by a shifting distribution of income, and by cutbacks in public services. Again, it's politics and policies. It's the way we responded to the crisis made matters worse. And just to see this in terms of numbers, in the United States, 95% of the increase in income that occurred after 2000 nine went to the upper 1%. So officially, the administration, Federal Reserve, say the recession ended in 2009. But if you ask most Americans, they don't believe that. <laughs> and the reason they don't believe it is, it's not true for them. Their incomes have continued to decline. And all the increase of the income went to the very top. Australia again, was fortunate because you took strong action to prevent this global downturn, the magnitude of which was actually, in terms of trade, larger than in the Great Depression. 
you prevented it from having the adverse effects which it had in other advanced countries. Well, I said before there are many dimensions to inequality, and I focus so far mostly on income. There are some dimensions that are in many ways worse. One of them is wealth inequality is even greater than income inequality. One, one number that captures the degree of in, wealth inequality in the United States is that one family, the Walton family, the owners of Walmart, famous for its good labor relations, uh, good gender policies, uh, and a demonstrated ability to excel in corruption, that one family has more income, more wealth, than the bottom 30 to 40% of America, which is testimony both to the amount of wealth at the top and to the lack of wealth at the bottom. An area, again, where U.S. excels in inequality is inequality in healthcare, because we have a very expensive, very inefficient, and very unfair healthcare system. And I know that some people in Australia want to emulate certain features of this healthcare system by charging prices and changing free access. But the consequence of, of this healthcare system is that we spend twice the amount that Australia spends. Life expectancy is three years lower than in Australia, and other health indicators are uh, equally bad. Uh, and there is enormous inequality in not only access to healthcare, but in health itself. There are other dimensions I don't have time to talk about here, I talk about in my book, but those include inequality and exposure to environmental hazards and access to justice. But perhaps the most invidious aspect of inequality in the United States is so contrary to our image of ourselves and others' image of us, and that is America likes to believe it's the land of opportunity, American dream, that anybody can make it from the bottom to the top. And there are examples, in fact, they get a lot of newspaper attention, of people who make it from the bottom to the top. The reason they get so much attention is that they're so rare. <laughs> Newspapers don't write about things that happen every day. Again, this is an area where there are large differences among countries, but among the advanced countries, America is a country with the least equality of opportunity. And what does that mean? That means the life chances of young American are more dependent on the education and income of his parents than in other advanced countries. Actually, Australia happens to be one of the best performing in this direction. And one of the reasons that Australia is one of the best performing countries is because of your education system, your access to health, uh, and uh, the kinds of support that you'd give. It may not be the best in the world, but it's certainly one of the better. Well, one of the increasing concerns, the recognition, recent research, that inequality of outcomes and inequality of opportunity are closely linked. Countries that have more income inequality have less mobility, which means that those who are who, who are born in poor families are almost very likely to, to, to wind up in poverty. What that means in turn is 
Because of inequality of outcomes and equality of opportunity is so closely linked, the increases in equality of outcomes that we've seen today in many countries around the world, including the United States, suggest that in the future there will be decreases in equality of opportunity. And in fact, the increasing importance of inequality of inherited wealth suggests that we are creating a new plutocracy. Well, let me now move quickly to the discussion of the causes of inequality. I've talked about the various dimensions of inequality, poverty, the evisceration of the middle class, the increases at the top. And each of these aspects has its own cause. Uh, Each of the dimensions I talked about, health, education, has its own cause. But the causes are interrelated, often hard to parse. There are social, economic, and political aspects. But what I want to emphasize once again is it's not just economic laws that are determining the level of inequality. It's it's largely policies and politics. One way of thinking about this is that all the laws and regulations help shape the degree of inequality, but we have to understand that markets don't exist in a vacuum. Let me give you some examples. If you look at the people at the top, say the Forbes 100 list of the wealthiest people, for the most part, they don't include people that have made the most important discoveries, that have transformed our societies. They don't include people who, who invented the transistor, the laser, that made the mathematical theorems that, that led to the, the computer, the people who discovered DNA and that really uh, had an enormous impact on on, uh, developments in biomedicine. Uh, They're disproportionately people who made their money out of some kind of what economists call rent-seeking. Let me try to describe that very briefly. There are two ways to get wealthy. One way is to make the size of the economic pie bigger. The other way is to try to seize a larger slice of a given economic pie. And unfortunately, a large portion of the people at the top are those who've excelled in seizing a larger share of the pie and rent-seeking. And these include monopolists, for instance, people who took advantage of of, uh, deficiencies in corporate governance to seize a larger fraction of corporate revenues. So the bottom line of all this is that, as I say, every economic policy, macroeconomics, helps shape the degree of inequality. There was a theory at one time that inequality was largely the result of individuals making, those at the top, made larger social contributions, and they were getting the just desserts for, for their contributions. That particular theory was totally undermined by the Great Recession. Because there we saw what? We saw the bankers who had brought their firms and the global economy to the brink of ruin, walking off with huge bonuses in the millions of dollars. Now, some firms were so embarrassed that they decided to change the name from performance bonus to retention bonus. But the question is, why would you want to retain somebody who had brought you to the brink of ruin? Well, 
let me go very quickly here to some of the adverse consequences of inequality, which is really the title of my book, The Price of Inequality. It undermines our democracy, divides our society. But what I want to focus on particularly is that it weakens our economy. It used to be thought that there was a trade-off, that yes, inequality is a problem, but if we do anything about it, it will weaken our economy. We'll pay a high price for reducing inequality. But now we realize that's wrong. That in fact, inequality in the magnitude that it's grown and the way that it's grown in the United States and other countries actually undermines economic activity. Now that used to be a radical view, but that's now become a mainstream view. The IMF, which is not known as a radical organization, has recently said that after a large number of studies that countries with higher levels of inequality grow more slowly and face more instability. Let me come then to the, the um, policy implications of all of this. And they follow fairly closely from our analysis of the causes of inequality. As I said before, every aspect of our policy, legal, institutional framework has effects on inequality. If we don't enforce bankruptcy laws, we're going to get more monopoly rents. If we have tax laws that reward speculators, then we're going to get more speculation. And those who do well from speculation are going to become wealthy, wealthier than those who work for a living. So one can design policy, legal, and institutional frameworks in ways which promote growth and reduce the scope for rank-seeking, and doing so actually promote equality, both of outcomes and opportunities. The result of that is that one can get growth in which all groups and societies benefit. The decades after World War II, when there was a high degree of social consensus, social unity, because people had fought together, were the period in U.S. history when we grew most rapidly. Interestingly, just for those of you who've been taken up by your current government's obsession with the deficit and debt, the U.S. debt-GDP ratio at the end of World War II was about 130% relative to the GDP roughly 10 times that of Australia. But that was a period after that high level of debt when we hadn't been able to invest in our economy because we were fighting a war. That was the period of our most rapid economic growth. And it was the period of shared economic growth. Every group in our economy grew, but those at the bottom grew faster than those at the top and was one of the reasons we grew so well. Well, government has many roles, both in changing the distribution of income before taxes and transfers, and in changing, correcting the market distribution of income through taxes and transfers. There needs to be a comprehensive agenda to fight inequality. There are no magic bullets. The problems of inequality have been festering for a long time, for a third of a century. And so they won't be dealt with quickly. But in my mind, one needs to, to address this in a, in, a, in a comprehensive way. 
Focusing first on enhancing equality of opportunity by focusing on education, financial inclusion, inheritance taxes, promoting full employment, discouraging rent-seeking, industrial policies, including redirecting innovation to create more jobs. In my book in the last chapter, which I encourage you to buy, maybe read, uh, (laughs) uh, in the last chapter I describe a comprehensive agenda with 21 different things that ought to be done. I think, actually, we know pretty well how to create a society, an economy, which is more dynamic and more equal. The problem is not the economics. The problem is the politics. And that's why the political agenda is so important. The question is how we change the politics. There's a vicious circle in the United States and worrisomely in in other countries, when you have a high level of economic inequality, it's inevitably going to translate into political inequality. And that's what's been happening in the United States. And so the result of that is we are getting a, a system in which citizens are getting more and more disillusioned with our democracy. The rules of the game affect policies, politics just as they do economics, and those at the top have been using it The rules of the game have been changing the rules of the game to give them more influence. There's been gerrymandering, uh, increased influence of money, campaign contributions. The last election, both of the candidates, major candidates, spent more than a billion dollars each. You can change the rules. Well, I think Australia's system of compulsory voting is an important measure. In the United States, those who don't want the poor to vote, have been trying to disenfranchise the poor by making it more difficult for them to vote. So in conclusion, the big question is the following. Economies and societies can easily get trapped in a high inequality, and I would say almost surely low growth equilibrium. A few economies, a few societies, have seemed to escape this trap. The question is, will the U.S., the U.K., and other advanced countries be able to reverse the direction which I've tried to describe as being so, so strong in the last third of a century? For Australia, the question is, will you choose policies that lead to more inequality and lower growth, or will you choose an alternative path that can lead to less inequality and higher economic growth? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Nobel Prize winning economist, Professor Joseph Stiglitz. I hope you've enjoyed this City Talk brought to you by the City of Sydney. If you want to hear more from other experts passionately committed to enhancing life in our cities, download City Talks from wherever you get your podcast fix. And if you're listening to us in Sydney, keep your eye out for more live City Talk events on the City of Sydney website. I'm Adam Spencer. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.